This episode is brought to you by Okendo. Over 5,000 of Shopify's fastest growing retailers trust Okendo to capture high impact reviews, showcase customer experiences, and drive conversions. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 119 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee, and today I spoke with Denise Woodard, the founder and CEO of Partake Foods. Launched in 2016 and backed by celebrities, including Rihanna and Jay-Z, Partake Foods is a food company that specializes in selling delicious cookies that are gluten-free, vegan, non-GMO, and free of the top 14 allergens. In this episode, Denise shares with us her journey from growing up in North Carolina as an only child with an African-American dad and a Korean mom, to working at Coca-Cola, to experiencing an allergy scare with her daughter during her first birthday, which motivated her to create an allergy-friendly food brand. We talk about the three stages of the CEO role that change as the business grows, how important a supportive founder network is, and the mental shifts she's had to make as an entrepreneur. Thanks so much for tuning into the show today. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to click subscribe, follow us on Spotify, or leave us an awesome review. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Denise, how are you today? It's so good to see you. I'm doing well, Lee. I'm excited for this conversation. I'm so excited. I feel like I've been waiting forever for this interview. (laughs) I feel like our fundraise took forever. I'm glad that it's wrapped up and I can get back to doing things like this that I enjoy. Yes, we rescheduled a few times. So I'm so excited. We're making it happen right now. Your story is so inspiring and I'm really excited to share your story and building Partake Foods. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course, I'm excited for the conversation. So where are you from originally? What was childhood like growing up? I am from Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is a military community right outside of Fort Bragg. I am the daughter of an African-American man and Korean woman. And my dad was an entrepreneur, is an entrepreneur. He was in the army for a while and then became an over-the-road truck driver and over time saved enough money to buy a truck and then another truck and another truck and runs a small transportation company in my hometown. It was there where I probably got my first taste of entrepreneurship and, and how rewarding but also hard the the journey can be. Um, And I think it was because of that, that my parents did not want me to be an entrepreneur. And they were like, go to college, get a safe corporate job. And I followed their directions and and went to school at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and spent most of my career in CPG, mostly at Coca-Cola. So kind of going back to childhood a little bit more, what kind of kid were you? Did you have um, siblings growing up? And what kind of things were you into? Were you kind of entrepreneurial as a kid? I was an, I'm an only child. I was not particularly entrepreneurial as a child that did come later. I had a few side hustles in, uh, post-college that we can talk about. I was like classic overachiever, like what do you call that editor in chief of the yearbook and on the cheerleading team and in like the national honor society and like poster child for trying to impress my parents and do all the things that I thought would be necessary to go on to have a quote unquote successful life. That's funny. So you were really like trying to impress mom and dad and you found a lot of probably reward in doing that. Did they reward you in some way that kept you going or like what incentivized you? You know, my mom, not to generalize, she's Korean and she is very much a tiger mom. So it was just the expectation, like you only make A's and you are the president of all the things, um, so, you <laughs> well, know, for good or for bad, that was the situation. I think it, it taught me a lot about work ethic and things like yeah, that. So. Absolutely. So what were some of the first jobs, I guess, that you had? 
I always wanted to work. Um, so I got a job when I was 16. My first job was as a hostess at On the Border Mexican restaurant. I worked a lot of retail jobs through high school and college at Coach and all kinds of uh, different women's apparel stores in the mall. the mall. So I was pretty much a mall <laughs> yeah. rat. I spent many years as a mall rat. Yeah. I've worked in retail too at Express at the mall, you yes, know, the mall I worked at Express. <laughs> That's amazing. That was like the spot, you know, that was kind of, they had like some good stuff back then. They did. That's when like the whole Abercrombie, oh gosh, speaking yeah. of which, the whole oh, Abercrombie documentary. I haven't seen it, but I yeah. need to watch. It's a little crazy. It's, it's a little <laughs> crazy. And I modeled too. So it took me back way back to when I shot that campaign and I, it took, yeah, all that whole, those days, that was a very interesting time, but Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, malls, retail, the the yeah. hostessing. I'm assuming maybe you're a waitress as well. You know, I was never a waitress. I don't know why, actually. I did the hostess thing and I realized the restaurant scene wasn't for me. And I was kind of more of a retail person. And so from there on through college, I was like mall ratting around different stores. That's funny. And so what did you study in school and, and what was your first job out of college? I went, I had several different majors. I thought I wanted to be an orthodontist going into college. And really? so I was a biology major. Yes, because I, neither of my parents graduated high school. Actually, my dad got his GED in the army and my mom had to drop out because of the Korean war. And the only person I knew that went on regular vacations when I was growing up was my orthodontist. And I was like, I want his life. He goes on vacation. He seems really happy. I think he makes good money. I should do this. Literally, wow. that was my frame of reference for wanting to be an orthodontist. <laughs> I love, um, that's why I ask, because when we're kids and we have these like small kind of frames of references for why we want to be a certain thing, you know, like for me, it was a school teacher. I was like, I want to be a school teacher because she's standing up in front of the class, being the leader and telling all these kids what to do. And I want to be like that. And I realized, wait a minute, I don't want to be a school teacher. I actually don't want to be in front of kids. I want to be in front of adults <laughs> being a leader. It's interesting. These frames of references when we don't really have that broader perspective, but kind of like it, it points us in the right direction. Right. So you kind of learned maybe through that, that you wanted to go on vacations. You wanted to have a different lifestyle than you had. Yes. I wanted to have financial security uh, that I don't feel like, you know, I, I don't get me wrong. I didn't want for anything as a child, but I wanted to have a different level of financial security. And then I took biology and I realized that it was really hard and I was not meant to be an orthodontist. And so I switched my major to public relations. And then I realized that was pretty niche. Like I didn't know that that's what I wanted to do forever. And UNC has a pretty intense journalism school. And it was like, if you choose public relations, like you are going to be very focused on that. And I was like, well, that doesn't feel like my jam either. So I ended up majoring in interpersonal and organizational communication because I figured no matter what I ended up doing, I I would have to be able to communicate effectively with people. And then my first job out of college, I'm actually embarrassed to share. I worked at Philip Morris as a territory sales manager growing up in the tobacco belt. Although I'm not a smoker, I think I had a different acceptance level of that, like at that point in my life. And then spent a few years there, got really strong sales training, but was like, I don't feel good selling this product and left and went to FedEx. Right, right. I see what you're saying. <laughs> you're like, I don't want to admit that I actually did this, but I did. Yep, that was my job. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? It was a good lesson learned. And then you kind of were like, okay, I want to work somewhere that more aligns with my values. Um, that's mm -hmm. a good lesson to learn early on. Mm -hmm. So you worked at FedEx, you worked at Coca-Cola. What were some of these experiences that you had that you think helped prepare you for entrepreneurship and building your own business? I think there was a lot, particularly in my role at Coke, that I learned about process and the importance of process. But I also got to see what I didn't want in terms of how too much process and too much hierarchy and too much bureaucracy often like slows things down. So there's probably like a nice middle ground. I had the pretty serendipitous opportunity when I was at Coca-Cola to lead sales for their venturing and emerging brands group. So I got to work with these mission oriented brands that were, you know, started because somebody had a personal problem and then went on to employ lots of people and make positive social impact. And so I got to see how a small entrepreneurial venture could turn into something much larger, um, which I think is what in part gave me the confidence to, to leave and start partake when I had the uh, incident with my family. 
So let's talk about that because I have obviously done my research. I know that story, but I'd love for you to share with our listeners, you know, how you came up with the idea for Partake and your whole story. Sure. So I loved my career at Coke, had no intention of leaving. And then my now seven-year-old daughter, Vivian, right around her first birthday, we had a pretty scary incident with food allergies. And we learned that she's allergic to tree nuts, eggs, corn, and bananas. We knew that she was allergic to tree nuts. And so the doctor suggested right around her first birthday that we introduce her to peanuts as soon as possible. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It was Wednesday afternoon. I was on a conference call. Our babysitter gave her um, a snack that just had two ingredients, peanuts and corn. And her lips started to swell up. Her tongue started to swell up. She started to turn blue. Thank God we had a couple of EpiPens and lived very close to a hospital. And they typically don't test for corn allergies because they're not very common. She's not allergic to peanuts. She's allergic to corn. But it was in that moment, I understood like life-threatening food allergies really means life-threatening. And then the idea for Partake was born out of my frustration and disappointment as I shopped for products that she could safely eat that tasted good, that had an ingredients that I felt good about. But most of all, out of like this frustration that while there were great brands, there were I was thankful that there were safe solutions for her, but the brands weren't products that her friends would ever be eating. It wasn't stuff that someone without like a medical reason would ever choose to eat. And I wanted to create a brand that was cool enough that people without food allergies would want to eat it because a lot of my concern for her was around the emotional repercussions of having food allergies, how she wouldn't ever be able to confidently participate in any play dates or birthday parties or celebrations because she would always be eating something different from her friends. Yeah, absolutely. And so you were frustrated that there wasn't really any options for her. You don't want her to feel left out. And so what did you start doing about it? Like what were the first steps? Sure. So It was a Saturday afternoon in the summer of 2016. And I had talked to our nanny, Martha, who has some equity in the business, who really got tired of hearing me complain and was like, you should do something about this. And it was just like out of a movie. I was telling my husband, Jeremy, like, you won't believe this idea Martha has. And this man in line in front of us turned around and was like, it sounds like you have a great idea. There's a pitch competition for New Jersey small businesses called the Start Something Challenge. That was a Saturday and the deadline to enter was that Monday. I went home and I incorporated a business, which at the time was called Vivi's Life LLC, because I didn't really know exactly what we were going to do other than make Vivi's life a little bit easier. And so I entered the pitch competition and we won, which came with $10,000 in seed capital, which was great. But more importantly, it came with some local press. And the last thing I needed was my employer to see me in the newspaper, like local woman starts allergy friendly food company. So it forced me to tell them what I was working on, which we, after lots and lots of discussions came to the conclusion that I could stick around until I had an actual product. And then there was a conflict of interest and I had to hit the road. Otherwise I probably would have tried to turn partake into a side hustle, like farmer's market weekend thing versus like going all in. So that's like where it started. And then I got to work moonlighting early mornings, late nights, every single weekend on, you know, how do I turn this into a scalable company? If I'm going to leave a career I love, I need to make sure I have manufacturing, I have product development, like I have a place to make this and I know how to make this at mass scale so that I feel comfortable leaving this job that I love. Wow. So you left your job. You just had this idea. And what was it about this stranger at the grocery store saying, Hey, there's this pitch competition. I mean, how did that's crazy. I don't know what it was. I tell you sometimes the universe, I'm thankful to whoever, I don't know his name, who he is, where he's at listening. You're listening (laughs) and you turned around at the zoo and told a crazy woman to, to enter a pitch competition. It it really was at the zoo, not the grocery store. Yep. Okay. Waiting in line to see some animals. And that's what happened. So you're, and then you were just talking to your nanny about this idea and they turn around and they're like, Oh, by the way, there's a pitch competition. Mm -hmm. And I decide to enter and I decide to start a business and enter and we won with an idea, which is crazy. That's so crazy. I mean, that was your first time pitching a business ever, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So I think that gave me some confidence invalidation because there was like legit judges. Um, so there was that. And I think there was also the aspect of pride. Like at this point I had like gone out and told people I'm going to do this thing very publicly. So I felt like I should go out and do this thing. 
And you had, you almost didn't even have time to think about it because you had two days to submit your application, right? Or to pitch, to prepare to pitch. And so you didn't really have a lot of time to think about, hmm, am I sure I want to do this? Is this the right thing to do? You kind of just dove in and we're like, yeah, let's see what happens. Yes, which was probably a good thing because had yeah. I had time to like really think it through, I don't know <laughs> if I would have done it. Right? You'd be like, wait a minute, what am I actually trying to do here? There was like no time to think about it. That's funny. I wonder, I really want to know if this person's going to like come back up and be like, I was that person. Oh, you have like multiple people pretending. Like, I, I hope I find the I real think? person. I'm so thankful to them. And uh, yeah, I hope they're not asking for anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Well, yeah, that's such an inspiring story. And so you got that $10,000, you worked kind of nights and weekends um, until how long did you have to do that until it became a conflict of interest with Coca-Cola and had to leave? It was a year. It was June of 2016 when I entered that pitch competition and I left Coke on August 1st, 2017 to launch Partake. And initially we were a self-funded, self-distributed cookie company, which meant I was selling products out of my car to natural food stores in the New York market. And I was bootstrapping it with my own personal savings. Right. And so what was it like to be full-time on this, you know, thing you've been working on for a year now, you left a job that you really liked because of this conflict. And now you're kind of off to the races and probably a lot of pressure, right. To, to keep to bring in the money, to put the food on the table and keep things going. What was that roller coaster like getting this business off the ground and being full-time on it? It was definitely like a physically taxing grind. Like literally I would drive to the storage unit every day, fill up my car, drive around. I had this route like Upper East Side on this day and Upper West Side on one day and Brooklyn the next day. And I would go into these stores one by one and merchandise the product and sell the product in and sometimes stay and do a demo or come back at the end of the day and do a demo into the evening. And so it was literally all day, every day, selling cookies, hustling, like feet on the street. That's insane. I mean, is that how it works though? I don't, these people like that buy for grocery stores, they are like in corporate offices somewhere else. They're not in like the stores. Yes, for chain grocery stores. But I think I was really fortunate being in the New York market that there are so many independent natural grocers that there was a way to build up a critical mass without having to go into like chain retailers, which probably would have taken capital that we didn't have at the time. Mm, I see. So you were able to kind of go into these um, grocery stores that were independently owned and the owner kind of was there sometimes, or the person at least buying was in the back office and you could kind of just pitch them, walk in or whatnot and um, get sell a few boxes basically and, and get the going with each one. That's an interesting strategy. And, and that's mostly because you're saying the basic lack of funding essentially, right? I think a combination of, I'd seen so many companies raise a lot of funding and then still implode. I thought it was really important for me to have an understanding of like the penny by penny finances of the business. How much does it take to make it? How much does it cost to market it, to get the sales to where I need to do to get them? And like on a very small scale, because I, I think oftentimes somebody would go out and raise a lot to start and then just be experimenting. And I didn't, I didn't fundamentally think it was okay for me to take someone else's money to go like experiment, although they would have made a return had it gone well. I also, from my own business knowledge, wanted to make sure I understood how the product moved, how it was received by retailers, how it was received by customers. It was really important for me to be able to get that understanding early in the business. Yeah. And so you've raised over like $17 million. And I'm wondering at what point in the process where you're like, okay, now is the time to start fundraising. Sure. So we, gosh, for about a year, I sold cookies out of my car and we bootstrapped. And then the next summer, in the summer of 2018, we went into a region of Whole Foods, so about 45 Whole Foods stores. It was also important to me to prove that this worked outside of like New York and LA. So we launched Whole Foods in Arkansas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Texas to start. And we also launched Wegmans at that time. We were boots, we were investing in those accounts and bootstrapping as much as we could. But at that point, I'd maxed out all my credit cards, emptied my 401k, sold my engagement ring. So we were kind of as far oh, wow. in. 
my financially gosh. as the we engagement could ring. I haven't heard that yeah. one yet. <laughs> yep. So that I saw, I heard that from um, the founder of Tatcha, a skincare line uh, that thankfully got acquired by Unilever. But I was listening to a podcast that she did and she was saying that she sold her engagement ring. And so that's actually what gave me the idea. And so we did that. And then I started to try to raise capital. We raised $400,000 in friends and family funding over the course of like eight months. It was, you know, there's no accredited investors in my family. It was five and $10,000 checks from my old colleagues, my husband, colleague, my husband's colleagues, friends who believed in the business. But that allowed us to show success in those original key retailers. And then in the summer of 2019, we raised a million dollar seed round of funding that was led by Marcy Venture Partners, which Jay-Z co-founded. And what's it like to get money from Jay-Z? How cool is that to have him as an investor? I, it was pretty cool. I think <laughs> it's, it is very cool. Um, I, I was really fortunate to have Marcy believe in us at an early stage and they've continued to invest in the business that are our series A as well as our series B. You know, we also brought on additional partners that had direct like food and beverage experience that really supported as we scaled the company. And so I've been really fortunate to have a very good mix of investors that have served the needs of the business. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews, and they want to make it simple and easy for you to collect user-generated content to use for your Shopify site. Retailers that use Okendo have seen an 81% increase in conversion rate when customers interact with reviews and UGC on their site. With Okendo, you can showcase UGC and reviews on your e-commerce site to build trust with your customer base and compel buying action. Okendo works with some of Shopify's fastest growing brands like Skims, Carbon38, Byte, Magic Spoon, so many more. So if you'd like to join these high growth brands, head on over to go.okendo.io slash stairway to CEO to book a demo and take advantage of getting 30 days free on Okendo. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So what are some of the challenges that you've faced in fundraising? And what's some advice that you have for entrepreneurs that are maybe going out for their first round or even their second? Sure. So I think some of the challenges I faced probably had to do with access. I didn't speak the VC or investor lingo. So I would advise founders to get really comfortable with that. So you, I I think people can smell it on you when you don't, when you're like, when you haven't. And so like being comfortable speaking that language, I think is important. They're like, what's your crack? And you're like, what did you (laughs) say? Quack? Are you a duck? Like, what did you just say? And they're like, no, customer acquisition cost. Yeah. And you know, there's a a complete lingo. Yes. All the acronyms. Yeah. All the acronyms, all of them. Got to know every single one. Do you remember any of those first kind of meetings when they were saying some of these acronyms or just the lingo? And you're like, oh, what's that? I think it was for me around a lot. I, I think because of my career at Coke, I understand the CPG lingo probably like really well, which kind of gave me some confidence that maybe I didn't even deserve to have, like when I was starting to the business, um, because I could speak the language of CPG. I think it was convertible notes and safes and caps and discounts and liquidation preferences and board observer versus board seat versus like all that stuff. I, that was all a foreign language to me. So it was actually the mechanics of the fundraise that I didn't understand. Right. Valuation, stuff like that. What's some advice? How did you start wrapping your head around that? Obviously, Google, I'm sure helped, but it is a totally different kind of finance language, right? And as a creative entrepreneur, I think a lot of people kind of struggle with learning that part of the business. What did you kind of do to to speed up that learning process? My husband actually works in finance. So that helps. So I would like like, every single evening, like this, 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 like help coach me. He works in real estate finance. So not the, not the same vein, but definitely it helped build a founder community. I don't think, I think it's hard for anyone unless they've been on this journey to understand what it's like. And the good things and the bad things that come along with it. So I tried to talk to as many people who were going through this or had gone through this as possible. And then I tried to find a couple of investors that I felt like I could be vulnerable with, that I could like 
become friends with and like, say like, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And like run bounce ideas off of. So it was really about being vulnerable about what I didn't know in a safe space and building a community around that. And how did you do that? Did you kind of just do it yourself? Like find a few people that you felt like you could bond with and and just was like, Hey, let's start talking at least once a week. Or, you know, what did that look like for you? Yes, that's exactly what it was. It was like LinkedIn reach out. It was, and it really creates like a virtuous circle. It was like, once I met one person who was great, they'd be like, you should talk to this other person or the, you should talk to this person. And so it became like a very virtuous circle, but it did have to start with me just doing some cold outreach to start. There's also some great communities that have popped up. We were fortunate to be a part of the Chibani Incubator. So that community was great. Um, Specifically for BIPOC food founders, there's a community called Included, as well as one called Project Potluck. Um, They didn't exist when we were first starting to fundraise, but I think they're fantastic resources that I would highly recommend now. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. How How was the incubator experience at Chibani? It was great. It's so truly altruistic. Like there's no, we want equity. We want this later. It's just, we want to help mission oriented food companies that are trying to make better food for more people grow faster and go further without making the mistakes that we did. And it's like truly a family. They're so supportive, so helpful. It was fantastic. And it's where some of my closest founder friends and like that peer network also came from. That's amazing. They don't take anything. They're like, we don't want money or equity. We just want to help. Yeah. I'm like, what's the catch? (laughs) (laughs) It's almost too good to be true. Never heard of that. Right. (laughs) That's amazing. Yes. And I have found that the entrepreneurial community, one of the things I love about it is people really do reach out to help each other. It is very like, I understand being in the trenches. So I'm going to try to help you because I understand how much that can hurt. And there's this kind of, let me help you help me later. doesn't matter type of thing, which is great. And then, like you said, this like kind of network effect of once you kind of talk to someone, they're like, oh, you should talk to so-and-so. <laughs> and before you know it, you do have like 10 friends that are all in the trenches. And it's just about kind of trying to maintain those relationships when everyone is so busy. Yes. So that's probably where it gets tough. For sure. That is definitely a challenge. So like deliberately scheduling, like I have the, there were several other female founded companies that were in the Chibani incubator with us. And we go to breakfast like on a monthly basis, but at one breakfast, we're scheduling the next one to make sure we're like all holding each other to it. Because I, I feel like if you don't very deliberately and proactively make it happen as busy as founders are, it just doesn't happen. But it's so good for mental sanity and health. Yes. So you do these breakfasts. How often are you doing them? Like once a week, every other week, once a month? I do them once a month with a core group of female founder friends. But then I also have a couple of other ones where I'm like, you know, grabbing drinks every six weeks or the one of my favorite female founders is the founder of a a snack food company called Belgian Boys. And we're doing Shabbat dinner with her family tomorrow. And so it's just like being very deliberate about making the time to connect. Absolutely. That's awesome. So one of the other challenges we were talking about earlier is, is because the product is an allergy-friendly you know, business and product, uh, manufacturing that at scale can probably be pretty tough. What were some of the challenges that you faced and how did you overcome them? There literally wasn't any manufacturing outside of a really large manufacturer who was doing stuff for very large national brands. And I cold called them and they were like, yeah, right. You're tiny. You don't even exist. Like, why would we work with you? Very nicely. Um, And so I ended up running a Kickstarter campaign because I was like, I'll show them that other people want this product. And it ended up finishing in the top 1% of food Kickstarters at the time. And I was able to go back to them and say, told you so. And they were willing to give me a shot. Um, Had that not happened, it would have been nearly impossible to get the company off the ground because of the lack of allergy-friendly manufacturing that exists. So you did that campaign to kind of prove to them the demand because they were basically, this sounds like this was super early days and they were questioning whether or not this is something that would actually take off. And that, and yes, actually that's exactly it. Yeah. It was literally, we couldn't start the company without a manufacturer in place. Cause I couldn't do a community kitchen because there would be a ton of allergens. I didn't have the capital to build my own facility and there weren't any others that I could go to, but they've been a phenomenal partner since we just co-invested on an oven. That's the length of a football field to keep up with all the cookies that we need to make. 
my gosh. What do you mean? An oven, the length with like, no, that's yeah, crazy, literally right? is crazy. Wow. <laughs> it's crazy. I can't even imagine that crazy. I mean, you have crazy growth. So, I mean, how have you been keeping up with, I don't know, all of this growth that must've been another ping point. Yes, it was challenging. I think from a team perspective, from a manufacturing perspective, from a funding perspective, like growth is great, but with it comes challenges. You know, I think for us, let's see, it was at the end of 2019, we're in about 350 stores, like very small regional brand. I was the only employee. And then at the end of 2020, we ended up 10Xing our revenue, getting into about 5,500 stores stores, building out the team to five people, all while COVID was like shutting down the entire country. So that was probably, that was, that was one of my biggest challenges to date. What do you do when, you know, things feel so overwhelming sometimes, you know, like I think as a founder, it's, it's just, some days are really hard. Like everything kind of comes down at once. And what do you do to, to try to combat that? Or to like, do you step back? Do you kind of like, just like, Hey, this day is not happening. It's not working. I'm just going to come back tomorrow stronger and take the day off. Or, you know, how do you kind of think through or, or work through really, really, really down days? A combination of a couple of things. So my seven-year-old is definitely the inspiration behind the brand. And while she understands the hard days, she also has to do her homework and eat dinner and like needs me to read her bedtime story. And so like, no matter how hard of a day I've had, like at 7 PM, I must be reading a bedtime story. And so that allows for an escape from the business that I feel lucky to have. And then other times it's, I'm pretty much, I'm a look a problem in the face head on kind of person, but I like to take them in small bites. So it's like, okay, I can't solve this whole thing right now, but like, let's be honest about like what the situation is. And then let's try to break off, break this off into small, like chewable bites. And so that's how I think about it. You know, it's funny you said that about that you have that bedtime story time at seven o'clock every night. And I remember I have a one-year-old right now and I was, you know, as an entrepreneur, I think it's really scary to be like, okay, I'm ready to have kids now. Cause there's so much like unknown or can I do both? Can I manage building a business and have kids and, and be a good mom still and, and be a good parent and partner as well, right? Like there's other relationships also <laughs> yes. to manage. We kind of forget about them. We're like, yeah, yes, but actually, you know, hubby matters too. Yes. But so what I realized kind of on the other side of this was like, actually, it brings in so much balance. Like you said, it really actually forces you to take time on what matters, you know, with family versus when you don't have kids, you're kind of like, you don't have that necessary outlet every day that's so consistent. So anyways, I feel like I found some at least balance personally for that. And um, that I didn't know that I didn't realize that that would actually be such a huge benefit. For sure. I think it also, to your point of like forcing you to focus on what matters, it does that for me at work. Cause I know that at a certain time, like I have to shut things off. So I only can focus on the most high priority items because I have to go do something else later. And so I want to make sure that like my best hours during the day are spent on like the most, most necessary business things. It certainly helps limit the noise and and prioritize things. (laughs) Yes, for sure. Like today, what do I need to get done today or this in this hour? What do I have to finish? Um, Yeah, totally different pressure on time. As a CEO, how has your role changed? You know, founders get thrown the CEO role because you have to kind of put your name on the dotted line when you form form the corporation, right? But I think that as the company grows, the CEO role changes. And that's not always something that founders think about when they take on that title. How has your CEO role evolved? I had somebody phrase it to me as like the three kind of buckets of time are like visionary, strategist, and technician. And in the earliest of days, I was the technician. I was literally the mechanic working on the car, delivering the cookies, doing the tactical blocking and tackling every day. And over time, as the team has grown and we've hired people who are thankfully a lot smarter and more experienced in their functional areas than I am, my role has moved more towards that of visionary. Like, what is the strategic vision of this company? How do I help amplify the story of the business and why we're doing what we're doing? How do 
do I guide us towards this strategic vision? How do I build the best team? How do I keep the team engaged and motivated and be a steward of the culture of the company? And so it's definitely changed a lot, especially because I, I think for me, I was very comfortable as an operator, like in the spreadsheets and like delivering the cookies. And prior to my career here, I was always an individual contributor in all of my roles. So I had never managed one person, let alone an entire team wow, of people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that has definitely been a big change. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I'm under what lessons have you learned in managing people, especially for the first time? I think it's challenging but it's not, it's hard, but it's not complicated. Like I think people want to feel valued and respected and they want leaders who tell them the truth and who are vulnerable and who treat, like, I I feel like it, like a lot of the lessons are like things I see on my seven-year-old daughter's classroom wall. So it's not rocket science. It doesn't appear, but also understanding that like each person is very different and their motivations are different and the way they want to be recognized is very different and making sure that I see each person for the individual that they are and then show up in a way that like supports them and supports the business. And and so it's hard, but it's not complicated. How do you uncover those differences in motivations. Cause I agree with you. Yeah. Everybody has like different motivations and um, ways that you can communicate with them as a leader that will be more inspiring or less inspiring or motivating. Do you have a form they fill out with a questionnaire? How do you like to be motivated? Like, how do you uncover those things? From well, I think team? a lot of it comes out through day-to-day conversation, but as the team gets bigger and as people are remote, I'm not able to talk to every person as much as I'd like to face to face. And so we did, we did surveys. We do surveys, you know, annually, we'll probably move to twice annually. So I can't understand like, what is it that drive, like what makes you want to work here? What do you like about it? Like just like trying to get a very clear gauge and create an environment where people feel comfortable telling the truth on those surveys. Cause I think it's very easy to like, just check the, the easiest box or the best box, but like, I don't think we'll get any better if that, if people do that, if people don't feel comfortable telling the truth about what's working, what's not working, what they want to change, what they want to stay the same. And so I'm hoping that I'm fostering an environment where people feel very comfortable talking about that openly, because if, if I don't know, I can't change it. Exactly. And kind of going back real quick, because I know you mentioned there's three kind of um, phases of CEO. And I think you said phase one is it starts with the technician piece, your day-to-day operating the business. Then you kind of move into the visionary phase. I think there's this like strategist thing. Oh, that's in between. the one that's number two. Okay. So number two is you're focused on strategy. So like you're going to the meetings and you have like functional team leads, but you're still in the meetings and people are still coming to you for the answers for everything. And so you're not fully out of the weeds. And I don't know that the role is ever, I think they were explaining it more like a pie. And so like day one, you're like 100% technician, 99% technician, 1% visionary. And over time, as the company grows, the goal is that your role as CEO, you're high, like you spend more time being a visionary and less time being a strategist or a technician. But I think you're always going to be doing all three. Right. You're always like, so you're still today, you're saying a technician in some ways, like what percentage of a technician are you today? Probably more than my team would like, but I really enjoy being a technician, maybe 15%, maybe 15% technician. Um, my math is also not strong, Lisa. So 15% technician. <laughs> you can use rounder numbers, 25, 30. 20. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Like, I think I'm 25% visionary, 15% technician. I'm still pretty heavy in the strategist part, but we're starting to build out our team even more. And I'm excited to continue to build out the leadership team so that hopefully that percentage changes a bit. So they can help with the strategy. Yes. Right. So then you focus on broader vision. Yes. Super interesting. I liked, and how would you correlate these kind of um, phases of, you know, um, evolving as a CEO in terms of growth of the business, either from like revenue perspective or from maybe fundraising round perspective, but how do you know, like if you're building a company right now, like to the listeners now tuning in, and maybe they're going out for a seed round or series A, you know, when should they be starting to think about moving into those different roles? 
for us, it's like at the close of the series B that I feel like I, we have the capital and we have the business to attract the type of talent and to afford the type of talent that will help continue to move our business towards a much larger company. And so for me, I feel like I'm getting to that point where I get to spend more time or should spend more time on the visionary piece. I think you also just start to know, like some of the questions that come to me now, I'm like, I don't know. I don't feel qualified to make this, make this decision. And I also know that there's a lot on the line and this isn't the time to be like fully learning on the job. And we need to get the right people in the right seats who know what to do and how to do it. And so like, you kind of just feel it, I think as a founder and you're so like, you're so in the weeds and in the business that you know it better than anyone else does. And so I think you start to feel when you need to make those shifts. Right. So you think it just comes more naturally as the business grows, what you need to start kind of um, bringing in experts for, because learning on the fly isn't scalable anymore. That is correct. I think we've also been fortunate to have a strong group of investors and a strong board that I'm comfortable going to and asking those questions and kind of to back to that founder network, like particularly going to companies that are a bit further along than me and saying, you know, how did you think about this? When did you bring this person in Um, and understanding those things? What kind of things did you consider when it comes to forming your board and, and putting those people in those seats? I wanted folks who had operated businesses before. We tried to solve for several different functional areas. So one of our board members was previously my boss at Coke, but um, went on to be the chief growth officer at Beyond Meat and is a phenomenal salesperson and just really understands the different key customers, the different channels. And so that's one of our board members. One of our board members is the former CFO of AT&T. And so the financial rigor and governance that he brings to the board is super helpful. Marcy Venture Partners, one of their partners sits on our board as well, and they see a ton of different companies. So I think they have very accurate benchmarks across multiple industries, specifically also to our industry, and have scaled, been alongside several companies as they've scaled, and so know where the pain points are. And then another one of our board members was the former CEO of Pepperidge Farms, which is one of the largest cookie companies. And so she knows leadership, she knows cookies, she knows manufacturing, she kind of understands the whole gamut. And she's also a she who happens to be, uh, well, she was a working mom. And so I think she understands personally kind of what I'm going through as well. Pepperidge farm cookies. Oh my God. They take me back to grandma always had the sugar cookies in her cabinets. And I mean, every time go and visit grandma, she's like, do you want a sugar cookie? I'm like, absolutely. (laughs) The Milano cookies are still, oh my God. So So good. good. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So What do you think are some of the limiting beliefs you've had to overcome to kind of get to where you are? What kind of mental shifts have you had to make? I think I've had to make mental shifts around the value of my time. I want to help everyone because I know how hard the journey is, but I also recognize when I do that, I'm taking time away from myself, from my business, from my family. And so I've had to really get comfortable saying no when sometimes I really want to say yes, but I just know it's not the right time um, for that. So that's one of the mental shifts. Um, This, I'm still working on this one. Um, One of my, the female board member that I mentioned, she reminded me, she was like, you're on the board too. Like, we're not your boss. And so like that mental shift of like, really like viewing our investors and board members as partners who are also here to drive the business forward rather than me like viewing myself as an employee. So there's that piece. I think this is generally around my capability and my level of like ability to do the things that we're doing. I think, you know, we started this as a business where I was selling cookies out of my car. And while I had a big vision for the business and I really believed it was going to happen now that it's happening, it's this weird feeling of like disbelief, but surprise and imposter syndrome and all these like messy like, feelings. How did I pull this off? Right? Actually, exactly. <laughs> Is exactly. this real? Yes, all of that. That's hilarious. Yeah. I'm curious because this is your first business, right? And so have you had to go through this kind of uh, mind shift as well of going from employee to business owner? 
yeah, I think sometimes it doesn't even hit me that that's the case. Um, like I view myself, but I, I think that sometimes the best leaders are servant leaders. So like, I recognize that I'm the leader, but I also am here to serve my team and to make sure they're set up to succeed because that's, what's going to grow the business. But yeah, that part is definitely different. Like being responsible for the payroll and like the office and like the things, like all the big things, like, um, that is very new. What's something you think a lot of people don't understand or would realize about building a business or being an entrepreneur? I think oftentimes people think it means you're your own boss, like to the point of being a servant leader. No, while I don't technically on an org chart report to my senior, my team, like I do feel like I owe them, you know, I owe them answers and I owe them accountability and like, I owe them like doing what I say I'm going to do. So there's internal stakeholders, but there's also investors and board members and customers and retailers and a lot of people that you answer to as an entrepreneur to have a successful business. And I think people often think, oh, you know, you just make your own schedule and you're your own boss. And in a scaling business, I don't think that's true at all. Right. Yeah. I, I was having this conversation the other day and it, I think there's a misconception that there's freedom involved with it and the flexibility. And yeah, I mean, if you're running a very successful big business, there's actually not a lot of flexibility and freedom when they're all coming to you. Yes, exactly. For good or for bad, like the buck kind of stops with the leader. And, and so there's that piece. Um, oh, Lee, my brain's so mushy. There was one other thing. It was the fact that you're your own boss. Oh, the fact that, that it's like the sexy role. It's not, it's like 99% like heads down, like being consistent, doing the work day after day, time after time. And I don't, I think people often think that there's like some silver bullet that just like rocket ships businesses. And like most overnight successes we see have been like years in the making. It's a total grind. It, it's a, it takes a ton of work and persistence. And you're right. I think they probably hear podcasts like this one and they're like, I want to be on a podcast talking about my successful business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, but you're right. Like 90%, 99% of the, the actual work of being an entrepreneur is just grinding it out mm-hmm. um, and not being on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Or on TV or in, in you know, Forbes magazine or whatever. So you have some really interesting partnerships, Sesame Street, and some really cool, I think outside the box, well, no pun on box, cookie box, <laughs> right? These are really cool. Can you speak to some of the partnerships that you have going on and the ways that you think about expanding the brand? Sure. So we have been fortunate to partner with uh, Sesame Street. Like you mentioned, we have a cookie monster chocolate chip cookie mix and an Elmo confetti cookie mix um, that are available on partakefoods.com. You can also find our cookies on American Airlines in their first class cabin. Um, We have some really exciting partnerships coming out next year where you'll see partake um, alongside brands that I've admired for decades. We have a partnership um, with WW, formerly Weight Watchers, where you can find our cookies um, and some of their in their studios nationally and on their website. And I think of it as when we can find brands that I feel like our mission and values aligned with us, it's really exciting to me that we're able to leverage those opportunities to grow our top line revenue and our brand awareness. And it's still like to that imposter syndrome, how did this happen? Blows my mind when brands like Sesame Street that I grew up watching want to do something with a little old partake. But I think it speaks to the magic of what we're building, a brand that makes that's all about inclusivity and makes better for you products that you can feel good about eating and sharing with others. And so it makes me really proud of what we've built and excited that that they're coming to life. Cause they also take a long time to the point of the grind. Like, you know, it's, there are a couple years in the making before people actually see them come to life. Right. Yeah. I mean, these deals take a very long time, I'm sure to even get closed and then you start making the product. So <laughs> there's definitely a process. Was it like two years at least? Yeah. We met the Sesame street team in 2020 and we launched the product in April of 2022. Wow. I was right. Two years. Yep. Pretty damn good. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, if you can sell as enterprise level software in a year, then I, and then you have to <laughs> manufacture the product after that, then that's easily two years. Uh-huh. 
So before we wrap up, I know we're coming to time here. What's some final advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs or even just business operators? And what's next for Partake Foods? Sure. So for aspiring entrepreneurs, I would say to remember that your journey is your own and it's okay to start small. I feel like oftentimes, particularly I remember when I launched and our launch was me driving up to a storage unit in Jersey City and filling up my car and driving to natural grocery stores. And I pictured based on press releases and things I had seen, like we were supposed to have a big splashy party and like this was in gift bags and it was supposed to be like this very fancy thing. But I think it was the discipline and the slow speed at which I built the business initially that allowed us to be here for the longer haul. And so there's that. I would also suggest that people don't wish away the journey, which I'm very guilty of. Like when I was selling cookies out of my car, I was like, gosh, I can't wait to get to Whole Foods. And then we got into Whole Foods and I was like, gosh, I can't wait till we get into Target. And I didn't savor those moments. And kind of when they're gone, they're gone. Like you get to experience that national launch once and you get to experience the first launch once. And so like savor those moments um, because that's what like the whole, like the journey is the destination. It's true. <laughs> and what's next for Partake? More products. So you'll start to see things besides our cookies and baking mixes, more distribution. You uh, can now find us in Walmart stores, about a thousand Walmart stores across the country, in addition to Target and Kroger and Whole Foods and Sprouts, but there's more coming and more impact. Um, we're really focused on increasing diversity in the food space and eradicating childhood food insecurity. And I think as our business grows, our commitment stays the same and the impact that we're able to have will only grow. That's amazing. And excellent advice too, for I mean, to savor the moment. I think that's just something that isn't said enough that you really need to celebrate those small wins. Cause you're right. They only happen once. And I know it's so easy to be onto the next, I got to conquer the world mentality, right? You just kind of like, it just blows past, but then you look back and you're like, wow, that was such a huge milestone. I wish I would have at least like had a cheers with my husband or something about it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, something to celebrate. Well, Denise, thank you so much for sharing your story and joining us on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. It was so fantastic. Thank you, Lee. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.